Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. My name is Lauren Richmond Jr. Today I'm welcoming Jason Porterfield to the show. Jason has made his home in places abandoned by society, from Canada's poorest neighborhood to the slums of Indonesia. His passion is to cultivate God's shalom wherever it is painfully absent and to help churches embrace their peacemaking vocation. In 2007, Jason joined Servants, an international network of Christian communities living and ministering among the urban poor. He was a founding member of the Servants team in Vancouver, started a new team in Indonesia, and directed operations in North America through 2015. Jason holds a master's in theology from Fuller Theological Seminary and is the author of Fight Like Jesus, a book we'll be talking more about in our conversation. Today, you'll find Jason living his riskiest location yet, next door to his in-laws. Let's welcome Jason to the show. All right, welcome to the show, Jason Porterfield. Thanks so much for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about you? Well, first off, Lauren, uh, thanks for having me on, on the show. Um, you know, after getting your invite, I listened to a few of, of the episodes you've done, and I, I love the conversations that you are facilitating. Uh, you know, I listened to the Brian Zond and David Gushy um, talking about some very popular topics, Christian ethics, deconstruction, but you also had, I loved... Uh, you had some conversations about church planting. How could that look differently? Or uh, what do you do when you have multi-million dollar properties and your congregation's dwindling? What would it look like to use your facilities in a kingdom way? So I, I just love that you're fostering these conversations that few are having. Uh, so again, it's just an honor to be here. What else would I like people to know? Um, you know, nowadays I live in Houston, Texas. Um, I'm married to uh, my wife, Laura, who's a family doctor in the area. We have three kids, uh, ages 6, 11, and 12, and they keep me quite busy. So uh, when I'm not chaperoning them as a chauffeur, you know, to and from school and all that, uh, that's where I try to write and volunteer a lot uh, at, with my church and in the area. So that's a little bit about myself. That's great. Thanks. And by the way, I did not pay Jason to say all that about the show. <laughs> so I appreciate those words. Um, Jason, share if you would just about your faith journey, uh, how you came to faith, what it looks like in the past and what that looks like today. Sure. Well, my parents were both in the military, Navy and Army. And so as a young kid, we lived all over the place, both within the United States and also a stint in Morocco. Um, and that really opened my eyes to looking beyond just America, actually. Um, eventually, we settled in Pennsylvania, and I went to uh, a Southern Baptist church, actually the biggest one north of the Mason-Dixon line. There's not uh, very many Southern Baptist churches that far north. And and uh, it, it was a pretty conservative and, and patriotic church, you know, a Navy base, an Army base right there, a number of members in the congregation serving in the military. They, they taught me a, a real love for Jesus and to to read the scriptures. Um, and it was there that I, I really uh, dedicated my life to Christ and felt like God was calling me to some sort of full-time vocational ministry. You know, I didn't know what that meant quite at the time, but I couldn't imagine doing anything else. So I went to, after graduating high school, I went to Messiah College, which was a historically Anabaptist school. And it was there that I really, primarily through interactions with students or outside of the classroom, uh, began to grapple with God's heart for the poor, for the marginalized, um, issues of injustice, also uh, nonviolence. You know, a number of my friends would say, you know, when Jesus said, love your enemies, don't you think he meant don't kill them? <laughs> and it was the first time I really grappled with questions <laughs> like that. Um, you know, there was one chapel, a couple of formative chapel experiences where um, one, a, a Catholic activist named John Deere came, and it was uh, one of the earliest times where I began to grapple with issues of nonviolence, and, and it was controversial. Half the students walked out of that chapel, and uh, wow. it was yeah, really formative experience. You know, my freshman year was when nine eleven happened, um, and so all this was just creating this this context where all of us as students were grappling: what does it mean to follow Jesus when our country's at war? Um, 
um, another chapel, this this guest speaker came, and it turned out uh, his first words, I remember he said, uh, I grew up Amish, but God has called me to minister in the city of Philadelphia. And I was like, wow, this is the first Amish person I've ever heard talk, you know? And, yeah. and he went on to say, um, you know, my city, the city whose name means brotherly love, uh, for the first time in history, more Christians live inside of cities than outside of them. But in my city, as soon as Christians can get enough money, they're fleeing for the suburbs. Uh, this is a tragedy, I remember him saying. And I remember sitting in the chair there in the in the big gymnasium where we all met, and I thought I was just making an observation. I remember saying to God, huh, God, if you could use an Amish person, you could use me, a suburban boy. <laughs> and uh, But evidently, God thought I was volunteering, because when, when chapel ended, I joined the, the cattle herd of students all trying to squeeze through the back doors and rush to class. And a friend of mine, she bumped into me and she said, Jason, I just signed you up to lead a spring break missions trip to Camden, New Jersey. It's officially ranked the worst city in America. Wow. You don't have a choice. I know God's calling you to this. And, and uh, you know, I'd like to say I, I just went along with it, but I actually went to the missions hub on campus. It was called the Agape Center. And I said, look, my friend signed me up. I need to back out. And then they guilt tripped me and said, well, we need an upperclassman <laughs> to lead the trip. Uh, we got 10 freshmen and sophomores signed up. Yeah. Have, they won't, won't have anything else to do for spring break. So... So sure enough, a few weeks later, I'm driving a van full of underclassmen to Camden, New Jersey. And it was there that I met a community of Christians who all had uh, college degrees, and they had all left good-paying jobs to move to what was probably the worst block in what was ranked the worst city in America at the time. And I had never seen such uh, injustice and environmental racism, you know, just the number of polluting factories that had been put in that neighborhood versus Cherry Hill, the affluent neighborhood just a few miles away. And, um, but I had also never seen a light shine so bright, you know, this community of Christians there. And so when I left Camden, I felt kind of like what Mother Teresa used to say. Uh, Cam, she would say when people had asked to volunteer, Calcutta's are everywhere if you only have eyes to see. Find your Calcutta. Mm-hmm. And that's what I felt like God was saying to me. Yeah. Um, and so after college, that's when I joined a, a missions group called Servants, who everyone with servants felt called not only to minister among the poor, but to live with the urban poor. Yeah, that's so interesting, um, your story about getting into the work. You know, I, I was just thinking too, Jason, while you're talking, it sounds like we're of similar age. You know, that whole nonviolent thing, um, you mentioned being a freshman when 9-11 happened, like, there was some pretty strong, you know, I think it's hard for folks who are younger perhaps or even reflecting back hard to remember how strong that kind of patriotic zeal was. Um, and it, I think, in fairness, I think I would classify it differently than, than the, the kind of Christian nationalism of today. But there's still that kind of like, let's go get some payback type stuff. Yeah. I can imagine, wow, that would be controversial to hear that uh, and be a big influence, you know hearing that as in, in college. Um, uh, hopefully we'll get into that more here in a bit, but talk about some spiritual practices you developed uh, or might recommend to others. Yeah, you know, I think the, the most important thing I could say to that question is that they've evolved over time based on my stage of life, based on, um, uh, you know, do I have kids or not? And so, you know, back in, in high school and college, my spiritual practice was reading the Bible an hour or two a day, uh, doing the read through the Bible in a year, uh, multiple times, having times of prayer. Uh, I remember in college in my dorm room, I, I dwindled how many down, uh, how many clothes uh, I owned so that I could turn my little closet there in the dorm room into a prayer closet, put a little light that you could just push, you know, battery powered and poster board, put a pillow in there. And so that was my spiritual practice then. Uh, when I joined Servants, well, I'm sure we'll talk about it more later, but I, I joined uh, a missional community in, in Vancouver, and there are some of the really formative spiritual practices for me. Uh, we would gather together every morning and every evening as a community, and our neighbors could join us. And uh, so each morning we would go through a prayer book that uh, Anabaptists had put together called Take Our Moments and Our Days. And so in the morning, you know, you'd say the Lord's Prayer, there'd be some scripture involved in that prayer book, but also there were five categories you always pause to pray for, and it was so helpful to make my prayers less uh, self-centered. And so, you'd pray for ourselves and those dear to us, pray for our community and our neighbors, pray for the church and all places, pray for the world, 
And finally, the fifth category, pray for other concerns we carry in our hearts. And so to pray for those five categories every day as a community was so formative. In the evenings, we'd gather at nine o'clock, and uh, it was kind of the last thing we'd do together. We often had homeless neighbors staying with us, and so uh, for those who weren't living with us uh, to get off the streets, that was kind of the clue. Uh, This is the last thing we're going to do together before we kind of close the doors for the night. And we would sing a Teze song. I don't know if your your listeners are familiar with that, so... um, We'd sing through a, a different Teze song, you know, four or five times. Then we read a psalm, and then we do a, a Ignatius examine, which is a, a prayer practice where you reflect back on the day. Uh, think, you know, where should I have gratitude for the day? How is God present during the day? How should I do? I need to respond, etc. Um, so, really important practices. But then I I remember. Um, one of my colleagues, uh, Kathy Delaney, spent tw- over 20 years living in the slums of, of India, originally from Australia. And we were leading a training time for new missionaries, and uh, someone mentioned that their spiritual practice was like mine in college, reading the Bible two hours a day, spending an hour or two in prayer. And she just started laughing, and she said, well, good luck with that in the slums, especially once you have kids. Like, <laughs> you're not going to be able to do that. You know, you're going to spend hours scrubbing your laundry. You're going to have to bake roti yeah. every morning, you know. And, um, and so, she talked about how her spiritual practices had to change when she moved into an overcrowded slum and started to have kids. And I've noticed that as well, you know. So, nowadays, uh, you know, obviously still digging into Scripture, times of prayer. Sometimes, though, it's putting on um, uh, an audio recording of, of the Bible while I do dishes, or I listen. Uh, my literary agent, Mary DeMuth, she has a podcast that just reads a Scripture and then has a prayer. So, I'll put that on while I'm doing the dishes or the laundry, right? Hmm. Um, going for a walk in the woods is really uh, just a crucial practice for me, time of prayer uh, with God as I walk in nature. Well, I appreciate appreciate that. Um, I'm very much not in the inner city, very much in the suburbs, but having kids and different responsibilities certainly um, know the challenges of different spiritual practices with so many responsibilities. Um, let's, let's move on. I'm really excited to talk about uh, Jason's the author of the book, Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. And uh, Jason, talk a little bit about, you know, the story behind the book, how it came to be, and that kind of thing. Sure. So, I mentioned how when I joined this missions group servants, I initially joined a team uh, in Vancouver, Canada. I helped start a a team there. And Vancouver is this beautiful city, but it's also home to Canada's poorest urban neighborhood. It's a a section called the downtown east side that's home to a couple thousand homeless, um, a lot of of neighbors struggling with drug addictions that, you know, I would often see the cops giving jaywalking tickets while while a dealer is offering drugs right behind them. So, they they would just try to, to quarantine it within that neighborhood. Also, just hundreds and hundreds of women, estimate of of 900 women trapped in prostitution on any given night there. So, I knew about all that when I moved to the downtown east side. And I moved there thinking of myself as a peacemaker. That is to say, I, I believed God was asking me to contend for the flourishing of this very beautiful yet very broken neighborhood. But, you know, I was pretty young. I was naive. I hadn't done enough homework. And so, I was blindsided when just three weeks after I arrived, the jury trial began in a nearby courthouse for Robert Picton, the man whom we would all soon learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer. So, over the past decade, Picton, uh, he was a pig farmer from, from the suburbs, and he would periodically drive into the downtown east side, pick up one of the many women engaged in prostitution, take her back to his farm, kill her, butcher her, and feed her remains to his pigs. And, you know, he later confessed to a cop uh, posing as a cellmate that he had killed 49 women, and he lamented the fact that he was just one shy of his goal. So, you know, needless to say, my my neighborhood was just devastated. I mean, Picton's victims, for many of my neighbors, they were the closest thing to family many of them ever had. Um, they were scared, you know, what if he didn't work alone? What if there's a copycat? Yeah. I think most of all, they were angry. <laughs> and they had every right to be. I mean, they had been telling the police for years, our na- our friends are disappearing. Something's not right. And, uh, you know, Picton, he never would have been able to kill so many people if his victims had been prominent women from the center of society. Right. And so, it didn't take long 
before my neighborhood's brokenness broke me. And, and I remember just feeling like a, like a failure of a peacemaker. I had no idea how to contend for the flourishing of my neighborhood. Yeah. So fast forward, you know, a couple of years, and, and uh, one day I, I dragged myself to church with what felt like my last ounce of energy, and I, I sit down in the pew, and it turned out to be Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. And uh, probably like many of your listeners have experienced, this church turned the day into a joyous occasion, right? So kids parade through the sanctuary shouting Hosanna, we sing a whole bunch of upbeat hymns, and we wave palm branches, and I was just in no mood to celebrate. I mean, I just had compassion fatigue, burnout. And so I remember sitting in the pew and just crying out to God, God, I don't know how to make peace, but I still believe you're in the resurrection business. I still believe you want to breathe new life into dying communities. And so I remember just asking God, Hmm. teach me how to be a peacemaker. Teach me how to cultivate shalom where it's painfully absent. And Kind of like that that chapel service where I said, well, God, if you could use an Amish person, you could use me. This was one of the, uh, maybe the second and only other time where God answered one of my prayers real fast. Uh, you know, usually it takes a long time, I think. And, <laughs> but uh, this time when the pastor got up, I, I just wasn't in a mood to listen to his feel-good message. So I uh, grabbed my Bible and randomly chose the Gospel of Luke and thought, I'll just read uh, this Gospel's account of Palm Sunday. And lo and behold, as I'm reading it, I discovered that something I'd overlooked every time before, namely, that while the crowds are shouting cheers, Jesus is shedding tears. And we don't even have to speculate about the cause of his sorrow, because Luke records that he goes on to cry out for all to hear, if only you knew on this of all days the things that make for peace. And I I don't know, maybe I, I noticed it this time because my emotions matched his for once instead of the crowd's, right? Um, I was overcome by grief, not glee. And so, uh, it's taken years to unpack the implications of that, discovering that lament. But as I sat in that pew all those years ago, I remember thinking, if I'm ever going to become effective at confronting injustice, calling out oppressors, and contending for the flourishing of my neighbors— then I need to study the greatest peacemakers, greatest week. And so that's what this book does. Uh, It goes day by day through Holy Week, looking at how Jesus contended for peace and how he corrected our misguided uh, methods that we use to try to achieve or maintain peace. Uh, I, I guess the other way I'd say it is just, you know, most books on Jesus and peacemaking tend to look at the Sermon on the Mount, and rightfully so. The Sermon on the Mount contains the core of Jesus's peace teaching. Right. But what I've come to realize is Holy Week is special because it's the main stage on which we get to see Jesus enact all of that pre- peace teaching. So those formally abstract principles like uh, be merciful, they find concrete expression uh, during Holy Week. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that because um, I come from a, a tradition, church tradition that uses the lectionary, if you're familiar with that, the Revised yep. Common Lectionary. And and many, many pastors and preachers often lament that the Sermon on the Mount comes only once, I think, every three years. Uh, so I appreciate the, the attitude that Holy Week uh, fleshes out, lives out, demonstrates the practices of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's talk more about um, let's talk more about uh, the some stuff in the book. And I don't want to kind of give away the whole thing, so I'm going to give like little. We're going to talk little bits and pieces here, but I I highly recommend um, whether it's you know I don't know how you envision this like as a church, small groups. Uh, I can imagine perhaps as like a Lenten study for those who are trying to use that tradition or heck, even if you're just come, you know, your, your non-liturgical tradition, um, I can imagine this would be a good kind of pre-Easter study, right? Yeah. You know, I, I include discussion questions for each chapter at, at the back of the book for that reason. I, you know, this is a book that I think is best processed together in community. Um, and I've, you know, I paired the last two days of Holy Week, uh, Saturday, which we sometimes call Silent Saturday and Easter Sunday, put them together in one chapter, uh, specifically because I wanted for Christian groups to be able to go through it during Lent. And so, it, it pairs nicely then with the number of Sundays in Lent through Easter. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely recommend it. Now, again, I mentioned, I think off the top, Jason, that I really like the book. And there are just so many, I think, intriguing um, talking points or lines you had in there. And I think that I think that's what's so compelling to me about the Anabaptist tradition and the, the peacemaking tradition, um, broadly speaking, is, you know, in, in at least I think in American Christianity, broadly speaking, we can kind of be like, uh, this kind of dualistic, like left, right, conservative, liberal, uh, and and I almost feel like maybe this is maybe I'm overly uh, broad here, but it almost feels like like this your peacemaking tra- tradition kind of like transcends these dualistic boundaries and really challenges us to to think about um, who we're who we're valuing, what we're following, those kind of things. Um, and and one example of this is you talk about in the book how we we i think we would say traditionally as christians like most of us would say like oh everything belongs to god right but it, it's almost come to be now in like 21st century america we're like everything but worship belongs to caesar yeah um so talk more about that sure so so in my chapter on tuesday of holy week which interestingly is the most talked about Day of Holy Week in the Gospels, uh, which I think most of us couldn't name a single thing that happened, <laughs> you know, on that day. Uh, we <laughs> sure. celebrate Palm Sunday and then skip to the main event Friday. Um, so, on Tuesday, you may, your listeners may recall, the day before Jesus, uh, it's what we call cleanses the temple, right? Uh, drives out the, the money changers, the animal sellers, their animals, etc. Uh, basically, he puts a stop uh, to the to the marginalizing and exploitative practices that were going on in the temple and then welcomes those who had been marginalized into the temple. Well, the next day he has the audacity to go back <laughs> to the temple. Yeah. And instead of uh, him confronting uh, the money changers and the animal sellers, this time the religious leaders confront him and they take the initiative. And so they ask him a series of baited questions to try to get his listeners to turn on him. And the second one is that now famous tax question. Is it right to pay the imperial poll tax to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And uh, probably for time's sake, can't go into the beauty of his response too mu- in too much detail. Um, but eventually, uh, he gets to his now famous answer, uh, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And it's a brilliant answer. Uh, you know, his question questioners had asked, is it right to pay? But he changes the verb right. to repay, return, return. Uh, and so it's kind of hidden when we translate it render, right? Uh, render to Caesar what Caesar's. But the brilliance of using a, a completely different Greek verb to return is uh, what Jesus is saying is in, in order to determine what to give to Caesar and what to give to God, you first have to be able to answer an even deeper question, namely, what belongs to Caesar? What belongs to God, right? You can't return something to someone unless you first know to whom it belongs. And in fact, uh, you know, I don't say this in the book, but the very last thing he says in response to the first baited question is a parable about a vineyard where he explicitly says, God owns the vineyard, not the tenants who think they do. Um, Right. And so, you know, no wonder why uh, it says, that the crowds were amazed at his answer. And it's a strong word in Greek. I mean, this is, uh, they're left in awe. They're uh, just amazed at the profundity of his, just the wisdom of his response. Um, now, I think most of us, we hear that and we say, oh, yeah, of course. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God's what's God's. You know, of course, we're dual citizens. You know, we're citizens of an earthly nation and and the heavenly kingdom. But that's not at all uh, what Jesus was saying. Um, you know, the religious leaders thought he was saying not to pay the tax because uh, they accuse him of that later mm-hmm. in the week. Um, I think the crowds are actually probably thinking the opposite. Um, and and so, but the early Christians and the New Testament writers, you know, they um, they said. Basically, it was a more nuanced answer. They said, we give to Caesar only that which aligns with God's will. Um, and so, uh, that was the early Christian stance. So, even Paul, you know, later uh, had a similar tax question in Romans 13, and it, it culminates where he says, here, look, here's the litmus test, ultimately. You owe no one anything but love. And just in case love is too ambiguous of a concept, he quickly defines it. He says, love does no harm to another. 
In other words, if the Caesars of this world ask us to inflict harm on another, we don't owe it to them. Uh, and so that was the early Christian stance. But then later, about 154 AD, a gentleman named Justin Martyr came along. And there was a lot of persecution going on. And so he wrote an apology to the emperor at the time. And in it, he quotes Jesus's now famous tax answer, right? Give back to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And then he says this, Whence to God alone we render worship, but in all things else we gladly serve you, emperor. And now, I, I don't doubt the sincerity of Justin Martyr's faith. Like, after all, he, he died for refusing to give Caesar the one thing he said belonged to God, you know, his worship. But Justin was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And he, wasn't, he didn't grow up being steeped in the Hebrew scriptures that are very clear, this mantra, everything belongs to the Lord, the earth and everything in it. I mean, it's a refrain you find throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Well, Justin, though, grew up being taught Platonic thought that was very dualistic. It mm-hmm. divided a spiritual from the physical. And so, no wonder why he thought that God was basically overseer of spiritual affairs and Caesar was in charge of all else. And so, you know, one of your your past uh, guests, David Gushy, and, and his uh, former colleague, Glenn Stossen, in their book, Kingdom Ethics, they talk about this a little bit, and they point out that, you know, over the centuries, it came to finally... Um, come to mean that uh, we give our worship to God, like you said earlier, but in everything else, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Caesar is Lord yeah. now. And it's just really tragic. Luther did the same thing. He, he basically took this dualistic reading and took it one step further and said that God actually has two different sets of morals and ethics uh, for when you're serving his kingdom through the church or when you're serving uh, your nation. And so, the greatest form of service to Caesar became carrying the sword. Yeah. You know, and it's still, I, I finished an, an MBA in the spring, uh, and one of the classes that um, I took for that program, it was from a Christian-based university, um, was more of a a Christian-based ethic approach to business. And one of the things I really appreciated was reading a book in which the author kind of called out what he called like a, a, a two-pocket theory, if I'm remembering correctly. Basically, this idea is like we can do what we do on Sunday morning and praise God and and be good Christians in church. But then come Monday morning, it's it's dog-eat-dog, make some money. And he was trying to to highlight the the how that's not really a good approach to life or ministry, this kind of dualistic uh, thinking. So, it's, it's interesting to see how far back that goes um, yeah. in history. Yeah, well said. I mean, when the early Christians said Jesus is Lord, they were co-opting political language that was applied to Caesar right. and saying, no, this is Jesus right. who's Lord. Now, I think what's interesting about this conversation is it kind of goes to uh, something else you write in the book that uh, means need to be consistent with ends of peace. And Unfortunately, I think I've seen this, we've seen this far too often in in this kind of like, you know, we want to, to say it frankly, we've, we've seen it, uh, at least I've seen it, speak for myself here, this kind of quote unquote owning the libs by some people where, where the, the, the ends is just owning the, the liberals or making somebody look stupid. And so when the, and as my, my spiritual director said, and I've said this before in a podcast, when, when the ends justify the means, the means... I think become the ends. I think I talked about this yeah. with David Gushy too. Um, and this is one thing I didn't highlight, but I, I've appreciated about um, Michelle Obama. I think said this back in the 2016 election, and she took some grief for it, where she said, "When they go low, we want to go high." Uh, mm-hmm. And she kind of, you know, I think she got some pushback by people saying, "Like, hey, like we got to win at all costs." And yeah. I think that talk about why those means matter so much in achieving the ends we want. Yeah, well, you know, as Christians, we're called to be faithful, not necessarily effective. Um, Though, you know, there are studies like uh, Stephen and Chenoweth, a book that looked at um, the record of conflicts throughout the world from 1900 to 2006, and they found nonviolent direct resistance was twice as effective at bringing about peace as violent resistance. So, that's not to say it's not effective, but ultimately we're called to be faithful. And, um, you know, I, I believe that the means we use are simply the ends coming into existence. And so, hmm. 
I'm not going to be able to get this quoted exactly, but I saw someone post the other day that said, if, if we have to sacrifice Christ-like means in order to achieve our end goals, then perhaps our goals are not very Christ-like. <laughs> um, and so, uh, I talk about this in the Wednesday chapter because I, um, there's a discussion on Wednesday of Holy Week in the Gospels uh, where the Sanhedrin gather together behind closed doors in Caiaphas's home to f- figure out how they can kill Jesus. And I think we, it's tempting, at least I did as a kid, I I kind of demonized the Sanhedrin. I just assumed they uh, had been offended. You know, Jesus insulted them. They didn't want to share. You know, he was getting all the glory. The crowds were turning to him. So, they were envious and they wanted to kill Jesus. But that's not what the Gospels actually say. The reason they wanted to kill Jesus was for a far more pragmatic reason. Uh, You know, the Sanhedrin, when they gather, they often had a practice where the youngest or the newest member would speak first, and then the the head priest would would speak last. Uh, An interesting, you know, approach. That way, the youngest wouldn't feel pressured or influenced by, you know, more tenured members. And so, uh, someone in the Sanhedrin, it says, said, you know, if, if we don't stop this man, the crowds are going to continue to come to him, and then Rome might come and take away the temple and destroy our nation. Right. So, that was the concern, right? And finally, yeah. at the end, Caiaphas uh, chimes in, and, and he says, you know, you guys know nothing at all. It's better for one man to perish, or better for one man to die than for a whole nation to perish. And his math, I mean, it seems indisputable. You know, one man is not right. as important as an entire nation, so it seems, right? It was a classic case of the ends justify the means. You know, if we have to kill this one man in order to save uh, our nation from Rome stepping in, you know, because it looked like Jesus was starting an insurrection uh, in their eyes. Uh, but what I came to realize is uh, Caiaphas's math or his logic, it's not as uh, uh, indisputable as it first seems, because what Caiaphas actually did was concoct a fictional future hmm. in order to justify his means. And, and that's the thing. Um, you know, actions have unintended consequences. And so, we often don't know what the end results of our means will be. And in fact, the ironic thing is, you know, Caiaphas's decision to kill Jesus very likely just only added to the public's mistrust of religious leaders at that time, a mistrust that continued to, to fester and grow over the next couple of decades until the Jewish-Roman War started uh, in 66 mm-hmm. AD, which started with the overthrow of the religious leaders because the public thought they were corrupt. And ultimately, that Jewish-Roman war resulted in the Romans coming in and destroying the temple, the very thing Caiaphas thought he was trying to stop. Uh, and so, so yeah, so in that section, I talk about how Jesus um, used means that were consistent with his end goal. Yeah. You use the word future there, and I think uh, obviously <laughs> the name of the podcast. Uh, I'm a I'm very much interested in in future sort of things for Christianity and the church. Um, and I think something that was intriguing in the book is you write that forgiveness makes a future when none seems possible. And and maybe let me be frank here for a little bit. I mean, I think as we're recording this, we're living in a time where many. Many people are kind of questioning the future of the United States, the future of our society, when there's so much discord um, yeah. and disagreement and, and frankly, hatred. And I wonder, like, this maybe this is maybe this is a lot to ask, you know, for you know, for, for myself in a person or as a, someone who has a good bit of privilege. Like, does more forgiveness need to happen uh, from from all sides? Does that make sense? Sure. No, it's a great question. You know, I I think back to to Gandhi's statement, you know, an eye for an eye results in the whole world becoming blind. He said it better than that, but uh, that was the basic gist. And uh, I, I remember, well, back when I was in college, hearing, uh, listening to a documentary, uh, there was yet again another uh, bout of, of conflict between Israelis and Palestinians. And... Um, this this reporter interviewed some Israeli soldiers, and, and they said, you know, in, in the scriptures it says an eye for an eye um, and a tooth for tooth, but we hear God saying two eyes for an eye and teeth for tooth. Um, and, I, you know, I think that 
that whole eye for eye, tooth for tooth was uh, in the in the Old Testament was God's way of trying to de-escalate things from getting out of hand, so that it's not two eyes for an eye and teeth for tooth, which is why Jesus then in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, uh, basically says, look, the ultimate goal behind this was to not return uh, evil, but to forgive, to love your enemies, etc., right? Um, and so, ultimately, I, I think the world is going to become blind unless someone can finally say, you know, I'm not going to take your eye or two eyes for you for you injuring us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think of like Desmond Tutu, you know, I mean, he was famous for saying, and so in, in, in South Africa after apartheid, he was appointed to lead the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And they had to say, how are we going to uh, heal? How are we going to not just brush aside the injustices that were done, right? When, when Jesus said from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I think he showed the importance of, of forgiveness. It seemed like an end, um, but like you mentioned, I say in the book, you know, this forgiveness has an uncanny ability to create a future when none seems possible. And, yeah. uh, and that's what Desmond Tutu realized as well. In fact, he has a book by the title, No Future Without Forgiveness. Um, hmm. Now, this is not a forgiveness that just... Uh, um, becomes a cop-out for letting injustice continue unabated. You know, Jesus resisted injustice with every fiber of his being. Um, And in fact, I think he was crucified on Friday precisely because of how he confronted injustice and contended for peace on the previous days of Holy Week. Um, But I I just believe there's, there's ultimately no future. Unless we can learn to forgive, that doesn't mean we just brush aside the injustices that were done, but then we try to address them in a restorative sort of way. But someone has to say, I'm not going to seek revenge. Um, I'm going to extend forgiveness, though you don't deserve it. Yeah. Let me ask you two more questions here before we take a break. Um, And I think the related, the first question is, how can we uh, fight like Jesus in an age of Christian nationalism when there's so much? So much tension. Yeah. Oh, man, what a timely question. Yeah. Um, man, multiple thoughts. You know, the first is, like, I, like I've already said, uh, that so when we fail to recognize that Jesus was crucified on Friday because of how he contended for peace on the previous days of Holy Week, then we risk, um, you know, despite being very familiar with the events of Holy Week and despite clinging to the cross of Christ for our salvation— we risk embracing the very approach to peacemaking that justified nailing Jesus to the cross, you know? Um, so, how do we fight like Jesus in an age of Christian nationalism? Well, I think, first of all, we need to um, maybe less spiritualize some of the words we use. So, hmm, less spiritualize? Yeah, so so the Greek word pistis, it's a funny sounding word, but we it's ha- we usually translate it as faith, but it's it's range of potential meanings. It's much broader than that. Uh so it can mean faith or trust. It can mean faithfulness or trust uh worthiness. So, you know, there's some debate among scholars when Christ says uh, give your pistis to Jesus as Lord, is he saying, or that we're saved by putting our pistis in Jesus as Lord, is he saying saved by faith in Jesus, or are we, is he saying we're saved by the faithfulness of Jesus? Either translation's possible, right? Right. But uh, Matthew Bates has a great book called Kingdom Allegiance, and uh, he points out that the word pistis was actually the word used uh, in antiquity to describe fidelity or loyalty to a king or a ruler. And the best word in English for that is allegiance. Um, That's how the word was often used. So, when we see this political language being taken from Caesar and applied to Jesus, and then it says in the scriptures that we give our, our pistis, our allegiance to Jesus as Lord, I think we need to realize that. Uh, so, how do we fight against Christian nationalism? Well, number one, kind of like Bonhoeffer used to say, our hearts have room for only one all-encompassing allegiance. Hmm. And so, I think we need to, when I said uh, de-spiritualize some of our terminology, what I mean by that is we need to start saying, uh, not just uh, I've given Jesus, put my faith in Jesus, but rather say uh, my allegiance is to Jesus as Lord. And then I think that will help us not identify uh, so neatly with one political party, so that to the degree that we don't fit into the kingdom of God anymore so nicely, but recognize that we are, uh, you know, 
everyone on earth is our neighbor that we're called to love. So how do we fight like Jesus? I think the last thing I would just say is, you know, I think the gospel writers present us with this very choice. How are we going to fight? Are we going to become nationalists, religious nationalists, or are we going to follow the way of Jesus? Mm -hmm. So Friday of Holy Week, all four gospels tell us that Pontius Pilate presented the crowds with a choice. Are you going to follow Barabbas or Jesus? Who should I release to you? Barabbas, the name means son of Abba. And Matthew's gospel tells us his first name was Jesus. Here we have these two rival messiahs, and we each have to choose which one to follow. Well, Barabbas, why was he in jail? It explicitly states that he was in jail because he killed someone in a past insurrection attempt. In other words, Barabbas, even though he was a failed uh, uh, insurrectionist, (laughs) at least he had proven his willingness to fight for the liberty of his people. Um, And so, I think, how do we fight as Jesus fought? in a culture that's becoming increasingly nationalistic, I think we have to choose. Are we going to choose the way of Barabbas, who is willing to kill and be killed for the sake of his people, or will we follow Jesus, who was willing to be killed but refused to kill? Yeah. Uh, This topic is very much on my mind, not just because of the national news or whatnot, but literally the other day uh, I saw a sign for a new church meeting at the high school. I don't know if they're new, uh, but I'm a church nerd, so I look it up. Literally, a church meeting at the high school near me, and you know their their t- their mission statement is something like you know take territory. It's just super Christian nationalistic language, and it's just scary as heck. Um, yeah. But what I love about your your ethos here, your message here, that I believe is the message of Jesus, frankly, is it's not like a quote unquote left right message. It's like this, you know, this is. This is the message of Jesus, and I think it really breaks down those barriers of, you know, um, th- so often this this kind of topic gets framed, in, like I said, a left right um, kind of framework, and it, and yeah. and you're challenging people like, what is the message of Jesus? How do we follow it? So uh, the second part of this question, I think that's helpful, and again, I'm going to speak from my socio. Uh, position here, sociological position, I guess you might say, is uh, many people kind of in my side who might identify on the left side of, of the spectrum, um, at least I see it perhaps, is there's can there can be a lot of kind of like um, looking down upon type things of, of people who are, who, who are very much entrenched on the right and Christian nationalism, that kind of thing. And you, you write about the importance of speaking truth to power, uh, but listening with humility. Uh, and I feel like that's an important uh, point in all this that might often be overlooked. So uh, finish up with that, if, if you would. So, you know, one of the things that struck me the most as I've studied Holy Week and how Jesus waged peace throughout that week was just how active he was. He was not passive, you know, and I, I think my personality is is to be more passive, Um and so I'm amazed at just how Jesus confronted injustice over and over again throughout the week. So he wasn't afraid to speak truth to power, whether that be Monday in the temple or um, Tuesday as well. You know, he has these these seven woes, these warnings to the religious leaders of his day about the hypocrisy and the injustice they were doing. He he wasn't willing to just sit idly by and do nothing in the midst of injustice. So he would speak truth to power, but he did so from a position of powerless. You know, he sp- spoke truth to those who had the power to kill him and did. <laughs> and so, um, <laughs> yeah. When I wrote about that in the book, I realized though. But wait a minute. You know, I'm a white, educated male living in a wealthy, one of the most powerful nations on earth. I have power. <laughs> and, and so, I think the main lesson for me from, from observing that in Jesus was, am I willing to listen when the powerless speak truth to me? Hmm. And they don't have to do it, uh, you know, it may come across as harsh. Like some would say when Jesus spoke those seven woes over the religious leaders that it came across as harsh, you know? Um, yeah. And, and so, the, uh, you know, am, will I have the humility to listen to them? And and I think that comes about through the books you read, through the Christian leaders you listen to, you know? Um, one of the things I love about the missions group I was with is now a number 
uh, I would say the majority of those joining are actually from from Asian countries. You know, Indonesians moving into slums. Uh, Filipinos. We just had three Filipino mm-hmm. ladies uh, who were in the slums of Manila go to slums of Cambodia, um, and that excites me. And I want to learn from them, <laughs> not just the loudest talking heads in the West, right? Uh, within in Christian circles. So some of that's just who does voice do I listen to? You know, I think there was a book a few years back called uh, "Doing Christian Ethics from the Margins." And I think that's really important. Um, when you live amongst the poor and powerless, you pretty quickly realize just how disproportionately they are affected by violence, both violence done to them, but also the fact that they tend to be the ones who are conscripted to do our fighting. So, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that it wasn't Caiaphas who had his ear chopped off. Uh, on Thursday, it was Caiaphas's servant <laughs> who had his ear chopped off, you know, yeah. sent to do his master's bidding. Um, and so, when you stand among the powerless, I think you begin to see from their perspective. Where you stand determines what you see. So, will you be willing to stand with the marginalized and the oppressed as Jesus did and listen to them? It may be some hard truth, but will you listen to them? Yeah. Well, let's take a break. I appreciate your words. Let's take a break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. All right, we're back with Jason Porterfield. And Jason, really appreciate the conversation. Uh, Again, the book is Fight Like Jesus, How Jesus Waged Peace Throughout Holy Week. Holy Week, excuse me, getting those two words combined. Uh, The book about Holy Week. Highly recommend it, uh, whether it's just for your personal reading, like Jason recommended. uh, in a church group or a community group where you can be discussing and and thinking about these concepts together, highly recommend it uh, for those um, for our listeners. Um, Jason, you can take these closing questions as seriously or not as you'd like to. Uh, but if you're Pope for a day, what do you want to do? What does that day look like? That sort of thing. Wow, you know, this mostly will answer that question. So back when when the Ukraine war was just starting, right and um, Russia had that big, long convoy, miles long, that was nearing the capital, Kiev, right? Yeah. I had a dream one night where where the Pope, Pope Francis, and a number of other Christian leaders, uh, and myself, and we, we went uh, and we barricaded a bridge to, that blocked their path to get into Kiev and chained our, our ankles across the width of the bridge and then had a barricade we set up. But it wasn't just a typical barricade, it was actually a table with food and water on it. And below it, we had a banner that said, we refuse to be enemies. Uh, And so, you know, I think, man, if I was Pope for the day, I would want to go to somewhere where there's just immense conflict going on and to try to point to this different way. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Boy, we could spend more time talking about that, but uh, for the sake of time, (laughs) uh, a theologian or historical Christian figure you'd want to meet or bring back to life? You know, someone who intrigues me that maybe your listeners aren't as familiar with uh, is a gentleman named Toyohiko Kagawa, who was called uh, St. Francis of Japan, born in 1888, I believe. Um, His parents died when he was young, and uh, in boarding school, he was introduced to some American missionaries, actually, who uh, had a love for for reading, and so he would read uh, the Bible, uh, Tolstoy, you know, and um, when he was 21, he... Uh, had graduated college, smart guy, but he felt God calling him to move into the poor slum in his city there in Japan. Um, And he did amazing things starting schools, uh, workers' unions, hospitals. Um, And just an amazing man, went on to write over 150 books, was uh, nominated twice for the Nobel uh, Prize in Literature and twice for the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, But something that I would love to talk to him about was not only his commitment to be in solidarity with the poor, but also somehow uh, when the world erupted into war, he had the foresight, the vision to not get uh, consumed by the nationalism of his day. So he actually uh, wrote uh, to China at times to apologize for uh, his country's harsh treatment of of them and actually got uh, jailed twice for his anti-war rhetoric. Uh, Wow. And I would just love to learn from him because it feels sometimes like our own day and age is moving in that direction again. Say his name again. Toyohiko Kagawa. T-O-Y-O-H-I-K-O Kagawa. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? 
Oh, I'm nervous about that one, to be honest. Um, mm. You know, I, I recently listened to an interview of German Mennonites that were alive uh, during the lead up to World War II. And so, something one of them said haunted me, and it makes me think about the church in America today. And it, uh, the, the interviewer said, you know, what was it like in the churches in Germany leading up to World War II? And, he, and the gentleman said, it felt like a revival was sweeping through the land. Wow. Churches were full. Wow. And he said, but I realize now that it wasn't the spirit of Jesus being revived in us. It was the spirit of nationalism. I realized that too late. And that statement has really haunted me um, as I think about, you know, my own uh, denomination that I attend now is, is historically Quaker, uh, well, a Quaker denomination that's historically a peace church. And we ourselves are teetering on the edge of abandoning that, that commitment to nonviolent forms of peacemaking. And, and I think that's true of a lot of uh, denominations and churches getting swept up by this nationalism. So, my concern, how will history remember us, is that for many Christians in the United States, at least, is that we ended up giving our allegiance to Caesar and not to Jesus. Powerful words, powerful words there for sure. Um, maybe something more hopeful. What do you hope? <laughs> what do you hope happens for Christianity? I, despite what I just said, I'm quite hopeful Hopeful for the church. And that's primarily because I think uh, the Western church doesn't have as much of a dominant role anymore. And there's uh, the church outside of the West excites me. Um, so, like I mentioned, you know, the, the number of, of uh, for example, Asian Christians uh, taking over the mission that was originally a, a Western missions organization for the group that I was with, Servants to Asia's Urban Poor, um, that excites me. And they're my, my mentors now who, who try, I feel like I learned so much from them, and they are the ones who inspire me. And that gives me immense hope. Yeah. Well, Jason, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate your words. Uh, I hope um, the book is helpful to folks. Share, if you would, how people can connect with you and uh, find your book. Sure. Well, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, Facebook's at Jason G. Porterfield. Twitter and Instagram, I believe, is at JG underscore Porterfield. But maybe the best place is just to go to my website, jasonporterfield.com. And in fact, if you scroll to the bottom of the homepage, I have a free ebook that uh, your listeners could get called 100 Early Christian Quotes on Not Killing. And it's just a one-page introduction and then just a uh, hundred quotes, just letting the early church speak for themselves on the subject. Um, and it includes uh, the sources, so you can go back and look at the original sources if you want to read it in, more, in its context. Hmm. That's great. That's great. Uh, encourage folks to check out that resource. Uh, Jason, let's make sure we get a link in our show notes when it comes time. Uh, Jason, I always leave folks with a word of peace, which I imagine you'll, you'll appreciate here. So may God's peace be with you. Amen. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go. Do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.